Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, you little legends, you. It's a Friday over here in Upside Downland, and the weekend is just around the corner. So let me jump right into today's tale, so as not to keep you waiting. Today is the finale of the Brazilian Cat, where we have slicing, we have dicing, and our man Marshall is exhausting every possible option he has to escape the clutches of a bloodthirsty feline bent on feasting on his body. One piece at a time. And mates, you bet this cat is going to get a feast today. And in the most dastardly way possible. Join me, mates, for the finale of The Brazilian Cat. A tale that is 112 years old to date. Enjoy. It appeared, however, to be rather curious than angry. With a sleek ripple of its long black back, it rose, stretched itself and then rearing itself on its hind legs, with one forepaw against the wall, it raised the other, and drew its claws across the wire meshes beneath me. One sharp white hook tore through my trousers, for I may mention that I was still in evening dress and dug a furrow in my knee. It was not meant as an attack, but rather as an experiment. For upon my giving a sharp cry of pain, he dropped down again, and springing lightly into the room, he began walking swiftly around it, looking up every now and again in my direction. For my part, I shuffled backwards until I lay with my back against the wall, screwing myself into the smallest space possible. The farther I got, the more difficult it was for him to attack me. He seemed more excited now that he had begun to move about, and he ran swiftly and noiselessly round and round the den, passing continually underneath the iron couch upon which I lay. It was wonderful to see so great a bolt passing like a shadow, with hardly the softest thudding of velvety pads. The candle was burning low, so low that I could hardly see the creature. And then, with a last flare and splutter, it went out altogether. I was alone, with the cat in the dark. It helps one to face a danger when one knows that one has done all that possibly can be done. There is nothing for it then but to quietly await the result. In this case, there was no chance of safety anywhere except the precise spot where I was. I stretched myself out, therefore, and lay silently, almost breathlessly, hoping that the beast might forget my presence if I did nothing to remind him. I reckoned that it must already be two o'clock. At four, it would be full dawn. I had not more than two hours to wait for daylight. Outside, the storm was still raging and the rain lashed continually against the little windows. Inside, the poisonous and fetid air was overpowering. I could neither hear nor see the cat. I tried to think about other things, 
but only one had power enough to draw my mind from my terrible position. That was the contemplation of my cousin's villainy, his unparalleled hypocrisy, his malignant hatred of me. Beneath that cheerful face, there lurked the spirit of a medieval assassin. And as I thought of it, I saw more clearly how cunningly the thing had been arranged. He had apparently gone to bed with the others. No doubt he had his witnesses to prove it. Then, unknown to them, he had slipped down, had lured me into this den, and abandoned me. His story would be so simple. He had left me to finish my cigar in the billiard room. I had gone down on my own account to have a last look at the cat. I had entered the room without observing that the cage was opened and I had been caught. How could such a crime be brought home to him? Suspicion, perhaps, but proof? Never. How slowly those dreadful two hours went by. Once I heard a low, rasping sound, which I took to be the creature licking its own fur. Several times those greenish eyes gleamed at me through the darkness, but never in a fixed stare. And my hopes grew stronger that my presence had been forgotten or ignored. At last, the least faint glimmer of light came through the windows. I first dimly saw them as two grey squares upon the black wall. Then grey turned to white, and I could see my terrible companion once more. And he, alas, could see me. It was evident to me at once that he was in a much more dangerous and aggressive mood than when I had last seen him. The cold of the morning had irritated him, and he was hungry as well. With a continual growl, he paced swiftly up and down the side of the room, which was farthest from my refuge, his whiskers bristling angrily, and his tail switching and lashing. As he turned at the corners, his savage eyes always looked upward at me with a dreadful menace. I knew then that he meant to kill me. Yet I found myself even at that moment admiring the sinuous grace of the devilish thing, its long, undulating, rippling movement, the gloss of its beautiful flanks, the vivid, palpitating scarlet of the glistening tongue, which hung from the jet-black muzzle, and all the time that deep, threatening growl was rising and rising in an unbroken crescendo. I knew that the crisis was at hand. It was a miserable hour to meet such death, so cold, so comfortless, shivering in my light dress of clothes, upon this gridiron of torment upon which I was stretched. I tried to brace myself to it, to raise my soul above it, and at the same time, with lucidity, which comes to a perfectly desperate man, I cast around for some possible means of escape. One thing was clear to me. If that front of the cage was only back in its position once more, I could find a sure refuge behind it. Could I possibly pull it back? I hardly dared to move for fear of bringing the creature upon me. Slowly, very slowly, I put my hand forward until it grasped the edge of the front, the final bar which protruded through the wall. 
To my surprise, it came quite easily to my jerk. Of course, the difficulty of drawing it out arose from the fact that I was clinging to it. I pulled again, and three inches of it came through. It ran apparently on wheels. I pulled again, and then the cat sprang. It was so quick, so sudden that I never saw it happen. I simply heard the savage snarl. And in an instant afterwards, the blazing yellow eyes, the flattened black head with its red tongue and flashing teeth were within reach of me. The impact of the creature shook the bars upon which I lay, until I thought, as far as I could think of anything at such moment, that they were coming down. The cat swayed there for an instant, the head and front paws quite close to mine, the hind paws clawing to find a grip upon the edge of the grating. I heard the claws rasping as they clung to the wire netting, and the breath of the beast made me sick. But its bound had been miscalculated. It could not retain its position. Slowly grinning with rage and scratching madly at the bars, it swung backward and dropped heavily upon the floor. With a growl, it instantly faced round to me and crouched for another spring. I knew that the next few moments would decide my fate. The creature had learned by experience. It would not miscalculate again. I must act promptly, fearlessly, if I were to have a chance for life. In an instant, I had formed my plan. Pulling off my dress coat, I threw it down over the head of the beast. At the same moment, I dropped over the edge, seized the end of the front grating, and pulled it frantically out of the wall. It came more easily than I could have expected. I rushed across the room, bearing it with me. But as I rushed, the accident of my position put me upon the other side. Had it been the other way, I might have come off scatheless. As it was, there was a moment's pause as I stopped it and tried to pass in through the opening which I had left. That moment was enough to give time to the creature to toss off the coat with which I had blinded him and to spring upon me. I held myself through the gap and pulled the rails to behind me, but he seized my leg before I could entirely withdraw it. One stroke of that huge paw tore off my calf as the shaving of wood curls off before a plane. The next moment bleeding and fainting. I was lying among the foul straw with a line of friendly bars between me and the creature which wrapped so frantically against them. Too wounded to move and too faint to be conscious of fear, I could only lie. More dead than alive and watch it. It pressed its broad black chest against the bars and angled for me with its crooked paws as I have seen a kitten do before a mousetrap. It ripped my clothes, but stretch as it would, it could not quite reach me. I have heard of the curious numbing effects produced by wounds from the great carnivora, and now I was destined to experience it, for I had lost all sense of personality and was as interested in the cat's failure or success as if it was some game which I was watching and then gradually my mind drifted away into strange, vague dreams, always with that black face and red tongue coming back into them. And so I lost myself in the nirvana of delirium, the blessed relief of those who are too sorely tired. 
Tracing the course of events afterwards, I conclude that I must have been insensible for about two hours. What roused me to consciousness once more was the sharp metallic click, which had been the precursor of my terrible experience. It was the shooting back of the spring lock. Then, before my senses were clear enough to entirely apprehend what they saw, I was aware of the round, benevolent face of my cousin peering in through the opened door. What he saw evidently amazed him. There was the cat, crouching on the floor. I was stretched upon my back and my shirt sleeves within the cage, my trousers torn to ribbons, and a great pool of blood all around me. I can see his amazed face now, with the morning sunlight upon it. He peered at me, and peered again. Then he closed the door behind him, and advanced to the cage to see if I were really dead. I cannot undertake to say what happened. I was not in a fit state to witness or to chronicle such events. I can only say that I was suddenly conscious that his face was away from me. That he was looking towards the animal. Good old Tommy, he cried. Then he came near the bars with his back still towards me. Down, you stupid beast, he roared. Down, sir. Don't you know your master? Suddenly, even in my bemuddled brain, a remembrance came of those words of his when he had said that the taste of blood would turn the cat into a fiend. My blood had done it. But he was to pay the price. Get away! He screamed. Get away, you devil! Baldwin! Baldwin! Oh my god! And then I heard him fall, and rise, and fall again, with a sound like the ripping of sacking. His screams grew fainter until they were lost in the worrying snarling. And then, after I thought that he was dead, I saw as in a nightmare a blinded, tattered, blood-soaked figure running wildly around the room. And that was the last glimpse which I had of him before I fainted once again. I was many months in my recovery. In fact, I cannot say that I have ever recovered. For to the end of my days, I shall carry a stick as a sign of my night with the Brazilian cat. Baldwin, the groom, and the other servants could not tell what had occurred when, drawn by the death cries of their master, they found me behind the bars and his remains, or what they afterwards discovered to be his remains, in the clutch of the creature which he had reared. They stalled him off with hot irons, and afterwards shot him through the loophole of the door, before they could finally extricate me. I was carried to my bedroom, and there, under the roof of my would-be murderer. I remained between life and death for several weeks. They had sent for a surgeon from Clipton and a nurse from London, and in a month I was able to be carried to the station and so conveyed back once more to Grosvenor Mansions. I have one remembrance of that illness, which might have been part of that ever-changing panorama conjured up by a delirious brain were it not so definitively fixed in my memory. One night, when the nurse was absent, the door of my chamber opened, 
and the tall woman in blackest mourning slipped into the room. She came across to me, and as she bent her sallow face, I saw by the faint gleam of the nightlight that it was the Brazilian woman whom my cousin had married. She stared intently into my face, and her expression was more kindly than I had ever seen it. Are you conscious? She asked. I feebly nodded, for I was still very weak. Well then, I only wish to say to you that you have yourself to blame. Did I not do all I could for you? From the beginning I tried to drive you from the house, by every means, short of betraying my husband. I tried to save you from him. I knew that he had a reason for bringing you here. I knew that he would never let you get away again. No one knew him as I knew him, who has suffered from him so often. I did not dare to tell you all this. He would have killed me. But I did my best for you. As things have turned out, you have been the best friend that I have ever had. You have set me free. And I fancied that nothing but death would do that. I am sorry if you are hurt, but I cannot reproach myself. I told you that you were a fool, and a fool you have been. She crept out of the room, the bitter, singular woman, and I was never destined to see her again. With what remained from her husband's property, she went back to her native land, and I have heard that she afterwards took the veil at Pernambuco. It was not until I had been back in London for some time that the doctors pronounced me to be well enough to do business. It was not a very welcome permission to me, for I feared that it would be the signal of an inrush of creditors. But it was Summers, my lawyer, who first took advantage of it. I am very glad to see that your lordship is so much better, said he. I have been waiting a long time to offer my congratulations. What do you mean, Summers? This is no time for joking. I mean what I say, he answered. You have been Lord Southerton for the last six weeks, but we feared that it would retard your recovery if you were to learn it. Lord Southerton? One of the richest peers in England? I could not believe my ears. And then suddenly I thought of the time which had elapsed, and how it coincided with my injuries. Then Lord Southerton must have died about the same time that I was hurt. His death occurred upon that very day. Summers looked hard at me as I spoke. And I am convinced, for he was a very shrewd fellow, that he had guessed the true state of the case. He paused for a moment, as if waiting a confidence from me. But I could not see what was to be gained by exposing such a family scandal. Yes. A very curious coincidence, he continued, with the same knowing look. Of course, you are aware that your cousin Everin King was the next heir to the estates. Now, if it had been you instead of him, who had been torn to pieces by this tiger, or whatever it was, then of course he would have been Lord Southerton at the present moment. No doubt said I. And he took such an interest in it, said Summers. I happen to know that the late Lord Sullivan's valet was in his pay. 
and that he used to have telegrams from him every few hours to tell him how he was getting on. That would be about the time when you were down there. Was it not strange that he should wish to be so well informed, since he knew that he was not the direct heir? Very strange, said I. And now, Summers, if you will bring me my bills and a new checkbook, we will begin to get things into order. Mates, looks like his cousin got his just desserts, right? The imagery at the end is actually pretty freaky. The thought of a man who's already dead, his innards splattered on the ground, being tossed around like a ragdoll, as he then runs around bleeding, slowly, and in agony as he does so. His fate already decided. The fear he must feel in that room with nowhere to run, to only be torn and shredded by a beast with no remorse, a fate that could quite have easily befallen our hero, Marshall. Had luck not been on his side, well, could have been a different ending. Mates, I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and join me next Monday for some old-time radio remastered so that you can listen to a blast from the past with today's quality and clarity. Now, folks, I gotta thank those people that reach deep and support me to keep this show running and a-growing. First up, my own knighty titan, the supporter that picks up this podcast in their palm of their hand, as a titan would want to help their hero. Launching this podcraft into orbit with their support. Maya, you are amazing. And every episode that hits the air is better for your support, and improved by your support. Thank you so, so much. This show, this show would not be the same without you. And Leza, mate. My white tea warlord, the guy who puts the pep in this podcast step. Thank you for your constant support and your never-ending encouragement. It's supporters like you that not only remind me why I love doing this show, but ring home that there are such lovely people out there, like you and Maya, that are willing to help this podcast grow. Thank you, Leza. And of course, the brilliant people that pump this podcast veins with awesome juice, my Earl Grey Enforcers, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker One, and Solstra. Thank you all for being bloody epic and supporting me. If you want to be awesome, just like these guys and gals, visit my Patreon page at www.patreon.com dot com forward slash sfgt and there you can donate whatever value you're comfortable with and know full well that it goes right back into production mates take it easy stay awesome which is easy for you lot and as always till next we me